we're in Matthew chapter number 5. If you're there, say amen. amen. I'm excited to dig into what the Lord has in store for us today. And as we've already mentioned, today is a day that many people in Christianity would, would call uh, Palm Sunday. What does it represent? Well, it represents the, the time when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that as Jesus began to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, that he, he rode in on a very young donkey as a sign of, of his humility and his meekness. And as he began to come in, the Bible tells us that people actually began to take off their, their coats and their garments and they would lay them down on the road in front of him as he was riding into Jerusalem. And then they tore off palm branches off of the trees and began to fan them at Jesus as he was coming in because they truly believed that this one who was entering into Jerusalem on that day was their Messiah, their king that had been promised to come for ages and ages. And so as he rode into Jerusalem on that day, the crowd began to shout out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna that they shouted, it means please save us. Or it could mean salvation has come. And as the people shouted Hosanna at Jesus as he entered Jerusalem on that, on that day, by shouting Hosanna, they were acknowledging that they believed that this was God's promised one. They believed that this was the Messiah. And Jesus indeed was the Messiah. The problem was, is he wasn't the Messiah they thought he was going to be. The Bible tells us that the same crowd that were shouting that was shouting Jesus' praise as he entered Jerusalem just five days later were shouting words of punishment at that same Jesus. The same crowd that shouted Hosanna to the king, they were shouting, crucify him just a few days later. What happened? I'll tell you in a word, Anger in their hearts. You see, these people were angry at the Roman government because of the oppression that they were under. These people were angry at Jesus because he wasn't the Messiah they thought he should be. He defied their traditions. And he didn't come in and, and, and start conquering Rome. Instead, he comes in meekly and mildly and he does nothing to... Uh, free them from the suppression of the government that they found themselves under. And so we see that this anger that raged in the hearts of these people, it led them to murder the very Son of God. Anger is at the heart of every murder. One person said, anger is murder in your heart. And it is a sin that results in hurt people, ruined relationships, and yes, even the loss of life. Our society views anger as the worst of sins, or at least one of them. Or not, word, not anger, murder. Our society views murder as one of the worst of sins. But anger is something that's okay. It's acceptable. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more, more about how that is true in the sermon here today. 
We hate murder. A lot of people today don't have a problem with anger. The words that Jesus speaks to us here in Matthew 5 cut right through our misconceptions on this matter to expose the real issue that needs to be dealt with. And that is anger. Listen to me. Do you struggle with anger? Are you an angry person? Are you a hot-tempered person? You know, it's not enough to just say, oh, that's just how I am. So, uh, even if you're a redhead, that's not enough for you to say that, okay? <laughs> it's not enough. And it's more of an issue than what we would like to admit. As Jesus continued the Sermon on the Mount, last week we saw how he talked about the law of Moses, and how he came not to uh, annul it, but to fulfill it. As Jesus proceeds in his sermon, he takes six commands from the law and uses them to expose how far, how far we fall short of truly keeping them. Now, last week we told you the purpose of the law is to reveal that we cannot be righteous enough by our own efforts to meet God's standard of righteousness. And so we must turn to the righteousness of Jesus Christ to find our source of salvation. Jesus takes these six commands from the law and uses them to expose how sinful of a people we really are. The first one that he deals with is murder. I want you to see what he says in Matthew 5, beginning in verse number 21. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. Verse 21, the Bible says, You've heard that it has been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Verse 23. Therefore, if... Thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee. Leave there thy gift before the altar, and go that way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come, and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, so thou hast paid the utmost farthing, your last penny, your last cent. As we look at Jesus' teaching on this sobering subject, I want you to notice four truths that lie at the heart of murder. And let's pray together before we dig into this. And as you bow your head and close your eyes, I want you to contemplate your own life as we pray. Ask God to search your heart and reveal if perhaps there's a struggle in your life with this very thing. And let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you and thank you for this opportunity to be able to take your word and to, to preach it today. Lord, I pray that you would set uh, me aside. I pray that you would uh, just uh, silence distractions and things that would pull our attention from being able to focus in on your word. And I pray for just a few moments, Lord, that you put a holy hush on this room and allow us 
to experience a moving of you among us as you speak to our hearts through your word. For those who are lost, I pray they would be convinced that they are sinners and they need Jesus desperately to save them. For those of us who are saved, we know we're saved, but I pray that we would also be convicted and realize that, th that uh, this matter of anger is not anything to be trifled with. It needs to be turned from. And I pray, God, that you would uh, do a work of reconciliation uh, with many people in this room today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Four truths that lie at the heart of murder. You want to write the first one down, it's this. I want you to note down the rule first. The rule. Now, verse 21, again, the Bible tells us, Jesus speaking here. He says, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. And read the next four words out loud with me. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. Now, this command that Jesus uh, uh, speak references here is found in what the Jews called the Decalogue. Um, and what we often refer to today as the Ten Commandments. And uh, any, uh, any uh, 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 red-blooded American should understand what the Ten Commandments is. And, uh, and this is the sixth of the Ten Commandments. We read it back in Exodus chapter number 20, and verse 13, where it says basically the same thing. Thou shalt not kill. And uh, this is the command that God gave in its original sense. Unaltered and without equivocation, God simply said, thou shalt not kill. And so God uh, is crystal clear on this matter. The selfish taking of another life is something that God has prohibited. Now let's be clear about what God is not saying here. He distinguishes that not all the taking of life is prohibited. Only the criminal taking of a life is is forbidden. God condones taking of life in cases such as capital punishment uh, or in just warfare uh, or in accidental homicide or in self-defense. And there's so much evidence in that uh, in the scriptures. But he was referring to the criminal taking of another person's life. Now if you think about it, murder was the first crime that a man committed against another man. All the way back in Genesis chapter number 4, the first two boys that were born, Cain and Abel, Cain murdered his brother Abel because he was angry with him. And so we see murder beginning there right from the beginning. And since that time, murder has been a, a problem of epidemic proportions in the world that we're living in. Last year, there were over 26,000 murders in the U.S. alone. Now that's a whole lot of taking of life there. But if you add into that all the suicides, the self-murders, and all the abortions, the pre-born murders, the numbers become astronomical. The amount of murder taking place in our society today, because this was the first crime that man committed, the Bible teaches us that the prohibition of murder was the original principle upon which God founded the institution of government. And you'll notice, you'll notice the Bible tells us in Genesis 9 and verse 6, when God instituted human government, uh, and it was to Noah, he, he gave this command to Noah and his sons when they were repopulating the earth. 
He told them, Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. And so let's be clear about something. The Bible teaches us that the primary reason God instituted human government was to execute capital punishment on those who would hurt other human beings. Now, oftentimes, human governments get, a, get very far off track from the original purpose that God founded them for. But make no mistake about it, government was founded by God to protect human life. Uh, God's image bearers, that's what we are. And God wants uh, his image bearers to be protected. And so he founded human government for men to have the ability to execute other men who would try to harm uh, uh, other individuals in a society. And this is the entire premise upon which government is founded. The severity of the crime demands the severity of the consequence. And uh, the Bible uh, is crystal clear on this matter. And I think that uh, uh, this is one reason as believers that we should stand for capital punishment. What good does it do to fill up our prisons with all these individuals um, without executing the consequence that God has told us we're supposed to. I'll tell you, there'd be a whole lot more fear of God and fear of man in our society if we brought back this. He said, I don't agree with you. That's okay. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. Amen. Somebody reminded me yesterday, I'm just the mailman, okay? <laughs> you, can you can choose what you want to do with reading the mail. God is crystal clear that he hates murder. Look in your notes at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. These six things does the Lord hate. By the way, he hates things, not people. He, these six things does the Lord hate. These seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Third on the list, murder. God hates it. He cannot stand it. And by the way, not only does God hate it, but the Bible is crystal clear about the fate of those who are murderers. Read Revelation chapter 6 or 21 and verse number 8. The Bible says that all murderers will one day have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Just a second death. God can't stand it. So we see the rule. I said there are four uh, truths that lie at the heart of murder. We see the rule, thou shalt not kill. But the second truth I want you to see is the ruse. The ruse, the deception. That was taking place about the subject of murder. You see, the original rule that, that God had set regarding murder was right in the way that God had instituted it. But it had been replaced by a ruse, a deceptive compromise that was devised by the Jewish elders of the day and time Christ was living in. And it is this that Jesus begins to address. Look at verse 21 again. Verse 21, he says, Ye have heard... That it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus said to these people, you've heard that it's been said of them of old time. He's referring to the ancient teaching which the scribes and Pharisees had taught the people. And understand this, in the time Jesus lived in, the vast majority of people did not speak Hebrew, and certainly could not read Hebrew. And so they, they relied entirely upon the scribes and the Pharisees to read them the scriptures and to tell them what the scriptures said. 
And what the scribes and Pharisees had done is they had developed their own system for following the scriptures called the Talmud. It was their own traditions. And they did not teach the scriptures. They taught their interpretation of the scriptures. And so what was happening for the people of Israel in the time that Jesus walked this earth is that they were not getting God's word. They were getting man's interpretation of God's word. You understand the danger of that? So Jesus contrasted the truth of God's word with the traditions of men. And he first began to do so concerning this subject of murder. Now the original command was true. Jesus said, you've heard it's been said, thou shalt not kill. But here's what the scribes and Pharisees added to it. The end of verse 21, again, the Bible says, he says, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Here's what had happened. The Jews had taken God's original command and they had distorted it. That's what they had done. Uh, one person said they taught that only the sinful act was prohibited and not the sinful thought. And so by reducing the, the sin, the crime of murder to a simple, simple act deserving only of being punished in a civil court, they had essentially robbed this offense of its grievousness before a holy God. We could put it this way, they had robbed the offense of a fear of God. The Bible says in Psalm 36 and verse 1, The transgression of the wicked saith in my heart that there is no fear of God before their eyes. You ever, you ever heard of someone doing something and thought, how could they do such a thing? They have absolutely no fear of God. No fear of eternal consequences. And this is what the scribes and Pharisees were doing by trying to alter the original command of the Lord. And so this compromise standard, it was so much easier for, for them to keep. And so long as they didn't actually commit the act of murder, they could be considered a good person. The, their intent to do so was irrelevant. As long as they didn't actually do it, they were, they were in the clear. And have you ever heard somebody say something like this? To justify themselves? Well, I've never killed anybody. That's essentially what was happening here. Well, I, I, I've never done the worst of things. Uh, surely I'm a good person because of that. Matthew Henry wrote this. He said, comparing ourselves to a bloodthirsty criminal makes us seem very good in our own minds. We like to compare ourselves to the worst of humanity to try to say that we're decent people. And that's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. And that's what human nature dictates for us to do. And throughout this sermon that Jesus preaches, he exposes the tendency that we have as sinners to reduce God's standards to a level that we can keep. And then when we reduce God's standard to a level we can, we can keep, we, we like to justify ourselves by showing how much better we are than other people who aren't like us. We're like the Pharisee that Jesus talked about in Luke 18 that prayed in the temple, God, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here. I fast, I pray, I give, I do all the things I'm supposed to do. God, you're really blessed to have somebody like me. That's our human nature. We like to compare ourselves with each other 
and, uh, and, and thereby justify ourselves, make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Can I remind you something? God is not impressed by your show. God doesn't look on the outside. He sees what's on the inside. He sees what's in the heart. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. God is not impressed by your ruse. You can say, well, I've never killed anybody. But God knows how many times you would have killed somebody in your heart if you could. We see several truths that lie at the heart of murder. We see the rule, we see the ruse, but a third truth I want you to see is the root. What is the root of murder? In stark contrast to the compromised interpretation of the law that the people had been taught by the scribes, Jesus exposed the root of this issue. Look with me at verse 22 of Matthew 5. Are you still with me? Say amen. amen. Verse 22, the Bible says, Jesus said, but I say unto you, think about it. Verse 21, he said, you have heard that it's been said. And now in verse 22, he says, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now just ponder what the Bible's telling us here. Jesus exposed the fact that murder is but the fruit produced by the root sin of anger. We look at murder and say, that's horrible. Jesus looks at anger. And he says, no, that's horrible. Because if anger never happens, murder never would happen. Murder is just the fruit that comes from an angry heart. That's what Jesus taught us. Jesus didn't say that anger leads to murder. He said that anger is murder. You understand that? The anger that produces murder is as great a sin as the murder itself. That's kind of hard to swallow, isn't it? First John chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, whosoever hates his brother is what? A murderer. Whoa. That's heavy stuff. Hate, anger. Whoever's angry at his brother is just as good as if he's mur murdered him. We like to com compartmentalize our sin. We like to put our sin in little boxes and say, here's the little sins, here's the big sins. But that's not how God views any of this. Sin is sin. We like to call it little and big, but God looks at it all and says, it's all wrong. We like to make sins, some sins little and some sins big because then we feel better about ourselves for committing the little sins but not the big sins. By the way, isn't it funny that we always put the, the, the sins that we actually do in the little sin box? Since we don't do in the big sin box. I heard the story one time about a husband who made this observation to his wife. He said, when I get mad at you, you never fight back. How do you control your anger? And she looked at him and she said, well, I, I clean the toilet bowl. And he said, well, what in the world does that do to help you with your anger? And she said, uh, I use your toothbrush. <laughs> Now, you ladies don't get any ideas, okay? <laughs> Our tendency is to view anger as a respectable sin. We laugh at it. We like to joke about it. But in the eyes of God, the root sin is just as evil as the result. 
of the root of sin. Now, have you realized how severe your sin of anger is in the sight of God? We like to make it a little sin, but God says no. It's just as evil as the murder that is produced from it. Jesus exposed the fact that not only is the act of murder wrong, but the anger that leads one down the path towards murder is equally wrong. Now the Bible, as we study it, it clarifies that not all forms of anger are wrong. And I think it's important to understand that because the Bible actually tells us that God is sometimes angry. There is such a thing as righteous anger. And uh, uh, righteous anger is, is, is getting upset because someone is degrading the name of God or the word of God. Jesus had a righteous anger when he went into the temple and he began to overthrow tables because they were trying to make merchandise out of his worship. By the way, it'd be good for God's people to have a little bit, little bit of righteous indignation about some of the things that are going on in our time today. It'd be good for some believers to take a stand in public schools and in city buildings around, uh, around our city and in our county and in our state and beyond and start standing up for our children and start standing up for truth. It's good for us to have righteous indignation. Right. Right. Not a wrong thing to happen. Some people say, well, Pastor, sometimes you get pretty passionate when you're up there preaching. I'd like to say it's always righteous indignation, but I won't, I won't say that it always is. But I desire for it to be. But what Jesus is talking about here is not righteous indignation. It's selfish anger. You understand? It's anger, the Bible says in verse number 22, that comes without a cause. Without a cause. This means that you are made angry for no real purpose. Or for vain reasons. Well, he didn't answer my text. I'm never talking to him again. Well, she didn't like my Facebook post. Let's face it, most of the things we really get upset about are senseless. They are vain, all right? They are silly. That's what he's talking about here. You get offended. Sometimes we're mad at somebody, we don't remember why. We just know that we were mad at them, and we don't want to forgive them. This is, where, this is where we live as human beings. By the way, this phrase, without a cause, is removed from modern translations of the scripture. I find that convenient. That's why you've got to be careful about what Bible you use. Jesus, as he talks about this anger, he proceeded to describe three different degrees of anger. We're running out of time, so I need to hasten here. But I want you to see these three degrees of anger. The first one he talks about is an inward resentment. An inward resentment. Verse 22, he said, you have, uh, in verse 22, I should say, he said, But I say unto you that whosoever is, an, is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. The word angry here is the Greek word orgaizo. And it speaks of a brooding, brooding, simmering anger that is nurtured and not allowed to die. It's holding a grudge. It's refusing to forgive. And this is a kind of anger that is not so much an action as it is an attitude of your heart. You're angry. They may never know it, but you are not going to let it go. By the way, this internal anger, if it is allowed to stay and fester, 
The Bible says in Hebrews that it will become a root of bitterness, which as it grows within you will trouble you and everyone around you will be defiled by it. Everyone who touches you will be defiled by your anger towards someone or something. Jesus says that the source of murder is your heart. The Bible says in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts and murders. <coughs> Among a laundry list of other things. And so Jesus taught us that even an angry thought against someone else was worthy of the same degree of punishment as the murder itself. Now, there's a progressive series of judgments Jesus describes at the first level with this inward resentment. He says, if you have inward anger, resentment in your heart towards someone, you deserve to go to the judgment. In, in, in Jewish culture, that would have been the lower court. This would have been uh, being, being set before the group of two or three witnesses in a local synagogue, and they would render a verdict against you. The point is this. Murder of the heart deserves equal punishment to murder of the hand, according to what Jesus taught us. So do you see how much your anger grieves the heart of God? What's the, what's the punishment according to the scriptures for murder? Death. Jesus says, you've murdered in your heart. That's what you deserve. Just as much as if you'd actually murdered someone. That's a lot to take in. The first degree of anger is this internal resentment. Do you struggle with it? Here's the second degree. The second degree is an insensitive remark. Look at verse number 22 again. Verse 22, the Bible says, And whosoever, whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. The word Raka has no English equivalent. It is transliterated uh, from the Hebrew into our text here in English. That's why we don't ever use the word Raka. But the word itself, it's a word of scorn that basically means to call someone an idiot or worthless. It's a language of, Solomon says in Proverbs, it's a language of proud wrath, language that's used to just trample on other people, call someone an idiot, to call someone worthless. This was the type of language used by the soldiers when they mocked Jesus as they put the crown of thorns on his head and as they hung him on the cross. They mocked him. They called them these, these, these senseless names. And listen, whenever you, out of frustration, tear someone down or berate them, you are evidencing this degree of anger in your heart. Jesus says the person who so berates people is worthy of going, the Bible says here in verse number 22, to the council. The Greek word is the synodrion. Or the, uh, the Sanhedrin in our, in our English term for it. The, the, the council of the, the, the great high priest assembly of about 70 different uh, scribes and Pharisees. And they would only handle the highest cases in the, in, the, uh, in the nation of Israel. It was Israel's version of the Supreme Court. And the Bible says, if you out of anger in your heart look at someone and say, you're an idiot. You deserve to go to the Supreme Court. And face severe judgment. Jesus is really changing the way we think about anger, isn't he? First he deals with the first degree of anger. And that is a, a, an inward resentment. Then he, meant, then he talks about the insensitive remark. And then that becomes the third degree of anger. Anger and intentional reproach. 
the end of verse number 22, the Bible says, And whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of what? Hellfire. Thou fool. Comes from the Greek word moros. We get our English word moron from that. What do you think it means? It means stupid or godless. You're a vain person. There's an escalation here in what Jesus describes. The first name that was, that was spoken that Jesus mentions, Raka, it's spoken without thinking. It's spoken out of frustration. This word is spoken with intention. You intentionally are trying to hurt and berate another person by the words that you are speaking. Speaking the first word is spoken in a huff. This word is spoken intentionally to cause harm. One person describes this as the murder of the tongue. How often with your words have you murdered your neighbor? Well, I heard somebody said such and such about so and so. You destroy their testimony upon hearsay. A lying tongue hates those who are afflicted by it. You better check your heart. Because Jesus said there's some severe consequences that await the person who struggles in particular with this intentional reproach. He says you struggle with calling people fools. You are deserving of hell fire. Now the word that is used here is a Greek word that speaks of the Guiana Valley in Israel. This was a place that was instituted by King Josiah in Israel's history it became the city dump where they would pour all the trash and burn it. But it was also the place where the bodies of criminals were burned. And sometimes the ultimate penalty was that they would take a criminal and have him burned alive in this valley. In the Jews' mind, it was the picture of the literal place of judgment called hell. This valley. It's interesting that Jesus says... Just being angry makes you worthy of hellfire. Now, as I studied this text, one of the things that I found most interesting is that Jesus never actually expounds on the actual subject of murder. He takes his whole time to expose the root issue of murder, and that is anger. The bottom line is, if you're never angry, you'll never kill anybody. It's very simple. But if you allow yourself to be angry, you put yourself on a path where you will be in danger of coming to even such a place as taking another person's life. Have you realized just how dangerous your anger is? You read the text later. Circle how many times Jesus says danger in this passage. The dangerous thing to be trifled with. Four truths. That lie at the heart of murder. The rule, the ruse, the root. And the final one I want you to notice is the reconciliation. The reconciliation. Now listen. I know this is hard truth. And I know this can, this can be hard to receive. And imagine the people that were sitting there listening to Jesus speak these words. They're no less impactful then. 
But these are words that can help us. And the goal of preaching a message like this is not to make you feel bad, necessarily. It's not to write and to rave. The goal of all of this is to expose your anger so we can deal with it. Yes, you may be convicted in your heart right now, but there's hope, there's help, there's a remedy. And that is found in reconciliation. The Bible says in verse 23, what's the first word? Therefore. Therefore, these things being so, everything that we've just discovered, now this is being built upon it. The truth that Jesus taught here should bring you to some decisions, in other words, that will change the way you live your life. Because anger is a root sin issue that has such dire consequences, the Bible teaches us that you must learn to reconcile your differences with others before your anger becomes a devastating issue in your life. I heard the story about two porcupines up in northern Alaska. And uh, they were cold up there in northern Alaska, so they got closer to one another to stay warm. And, boy, the closer they got together, the more they started to poke each other, and they couldn't stand it anymore, so they got farther apart. And they were fine for a little bit until they got cold again. So they started coming back closer together again. And there they go, poking and prodding at each other again. All right? And it's really the same story and the same ending there. But here's the moral. Here's the moral of the story. They needed each other, but they were also needling each other at the same time. <laughs> I do, okay? It's a dad joke for you, okay? Relationships are hard. That's the point. We need each other. But yeah, we needle each other sometimes too. The point is not that you never experience anger in your heart because that will probably not happen on this side of eternity. The point is when it happens, what you do with it. Reconciliation is hard, but it's important. And there are a few examples Jesus gives us of reconciliation that I want us to see before we're done. The first is, is this. I want you to note down spiritual reconciliation. Verses 23 and 24. Jesus gives this example of spiritual reconciliation. And in this, he illustrates how unreconciled relationships with men negatively impact your relationship with God. Look at verse 23 and 24. The Bible says in verse 23, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and thou rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Now, the offering Jesus uses in his illustration here is what the Jews would call the trespass offering. This was an offering that they would bring to the temple or the tabernacle, and before they brought it, they were to go to the person that they had offended and seek to reconcile their offense. If that meant paying them back for damages lost, then they were to pay that back and not just pay it back, but add a 20% interest on top of that and reconcile it. And then they were to bring their offering before the Lord and the tabernacle. And to refuse to do so was to be a hypocrite. Listen, to refuse to do so would be hypocritical. Because what that would mean is you know there is something that displeases God in your life but you refuse to do anything about it, and then you come before God like everything's fine. 
It's the definition of hypocrisy. And I say this to you. You listen to me. So long as you are not right in your horizontal relationships with men, you will not be right in your vertical relationship with God. You say, well, pastor, that's Old Testament. Well, let's look at 1 John 4. This in the New Testament. Verse 20. If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. John MacArthur said, reconciliation must precede worship. And I agree with him. And that's what Jesus was striving to teach to us here. Holding anger in your heart towards someone is a sin that is so displeasing to God that nothing pleases him that comes from your heart where anger is present. Look in your notes at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. The Bible says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without what? Wrath, wrath and doubting. Without wrath and doubting. Reconciliation is absolutely essential to your spiritual growth. Listen to me. If you do not deal with your differences with others, it will negatively impact your walk with God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus goes on in the next chapter of Matthew 6, and he goes so far as to say, For if you forgive, if you forgive men their trespasses, your Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Whoa! Talking about on a relational relationship level, boy, that is a lot to take in. By the way, it doesn't matter if it's you that is angry at your brother or your brother that's angry at you. It's still your job to seek to reconcile it. Either way. It's your job to seek to reconcile it. And so the question is: are you currently harboring anger or hatred in your heart? Towards someone else. Right now. And have you done something to cause someone else. To have reason to harbor anger or hatred in their heart towards you. If that is so. The Christ like response is to reconcile. I love what the Bible tells us Christ did for us. When he had every right to be angry at us. For our sins against him. The Bible tells us. That all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Christ Jesus and has now given to us the ministry of reconciliation. We see the first example Jesus gives is spiritual reconciliation. The last example Jesus gives, and I'll just mention it, is secular reconciliation. Secular reconciliation. In this second example Jesus shares, it illustrates how unreconciled relationships can lead to terrible consequences in your life. Let's read it, verses 25 and 26. He says, Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. And verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Now, this example Jesus shared came from 
the Roman law that everyone was used to at that time. And according to the Roman law, if you had a dispute with someone, you could demand by law that they go with you before a judge. And the illustration is that if along the way, as you are going to the judge to bring your dispute, you talk to each other and come to a settlement, well, that's fine. You have the ability to settle things on your own outside of the court, but as soon as you walk in that courtroom before that judge, the verdict is out of your hand. You don't know what's going to happen. And so the counsel that Jesus gives is make peace with each other instead of making war with each other. Because you cannot control what the consequences will be. You very well may not be done with those consequences till you've given every last penny that you have. How many people, because they don't want to give up their dispute, because they want to say, no, I was right, and I'm not going to stop until they admit that they were wrong. How many people have lost their testimony, lost their fortune, lost their ability to even function in normal human life? Because they held on to their, to their anger. Anger and bitterness are one of those unique things that when you allow it into your life, you think that by holding on to it, you're poisoning the person who hurts you, but you're actually only poisoning yourself. And it comes at a very high cost. That's why the Bible counsels us here to not allow a small issue to smolder and explode into a big issue. Several verses I've shared. I'll just read one. Romans 12, verse 18. The Bible says, If it be possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes you have to agree to disagree. Sometimes you have to suffer loss to let something go. The Bible says, If it's at all possible, to live peaceably. And so believers are to make every effort without delay to make our relationships right with our fellow man. If listen, if reconciliation doesn't happen, let it not be because it was your fault that you didn't try. You should at least try to reconcile. You can't control what another person does, but you should at least try. And by the way, look at the word in verse number 26. Or I'm sorry, verse number 25. Agree with that adversary how? Quickly. Speedily. In other words, as soon as you leave, Call it. In other words, they're in the room. Before you leave, talk to them. You say, well, I'll pastor. I've got to pray about this for a little bit. No, you don't. You don't. It's right there on, in black ink on white paper. Deal with it right now. That's what God says. You are in a prison of anger. And, and until you do what God says, you will not be set free. But the moment you decide to, by faith, do what God has told you to do here, even if the other person is, refuses to reconcile, you will find yourself set free from the prison of your anger. I told you as we, when we began that anger is at the heart of every murder. Do you struggle with anger? Are you angry at someone? Is someone angry at you? Is there a relationship that you need to begin the process of seeking by God's help to reconcile today? I hope that we don't just come and hear the Bible today and say, yeah, we should do that. 
Yeah, they should do that for me. No. God's talking to you about it. You need to do something with it. By the way, this is the last thing I'll say. Jesus revealed in this passage of Scripture and throughout this Sermon on the Mount, God's very high standard of being righteous. Man says, well, as long as you don't kill anybody, you're still a good person. God says, if you even are angry at them in your heart, you're just as guilty. I don't know about you, but I can't be that perfect. I struggle with anger. I'll admit it. I get frustrated. I get upset. I say things that I regret saying to people. I'm not perfect, by the way, neither are you. Jesus gave us this very high standard to expose the reality that we can never be good enough for God to go to heaven. And the only way we can be saved is by trusting in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross to pay for our sins and give us the hope of heaven. If you're here today and you're convicted of your sin, you have no hope of going to heaven by trying to stop being an angry person. Your only hope is to fall on your face before God and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, save me. I can never be good enough. And if you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I hope that you'll do that today. Let's all...